0: Alright, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fuck, Anistas? What's happening? It's Mark Marin. It's me, presenting Mark Marin. Thank you. What's going on? Before I get too carried away, Sean Lennon is here. Sean Lennon. Uh, yeah. Son of John and Yoko. One of the, uh, the, the sort of, uh, by no intention of himself, somewhat royalty. Rock and roll royalty. A prince. Really, and I'm sure that's not going to make him happy. But we had a, a, a lovely conversation, and uh, you'll hear that soon. I would like to say I hope everyone's all right here in, in Manhattan. Apparently, half the, half the fucking island went dark last night, and uh, one of our screenings got canceled. The early screening up at the Landmark 57 got canceled because, I don't know, I, I think some kid stuck a fork in a plug Know, up on the west side and just shut the half the city down a transformer went I, I you know i i can't trust my brain anymore around this stuff i don't know what that means you know i i did watch the entire season of stranger things there could be there could be monsters involved that's all i'm saying i haven't seen anything uh, that indicates that but i i am i hope everybody made it through all right we did lose the screening i apologize to the people that that went to that. There was nothing I could do. There was nothing any of us could do. There was no one we could call. And in and oddly, and, and this is hard for me to admit, it didn't have anything to do with me. And it did. It did affected a, a good deal of Manhattan. And I'm I, I'm happy to say that I it didn't have anything to do with me. But but even the fact that uh, you know it was on the second night of our premiere weekend here in New York City, uh, there was a time. Where something like that would happen and I'd be like, this this is, you know, this is just just my luck. You know, there are people stuck in elevators, you know, people locked in things. You know, it just, it, it, the thousands of people were compromised. I, I think most of them are okay. But you know, the blackout went on a long time. I don't even know if it's fixed today. I'm recording this Sunday. But there was a time where I'd be like, this is a sign. This, uh, This probably happened because of me. This is payback. This is karma. For some past behavior. For a vestige of shittiness. I looked up the word vestige before this show, so I'll be using that. Today's Today's word is vestige. Noun. A trace of something that is disappearing or no longer exists. Yeah, my, my, my past? Here's the other definition. The smallest amount, in parentheses, used to emphasize the absence of something. Oh, and then in biology a part or organ of an organism that has become reduced or functionless in the course of evolution. That, of course, is happening to a good deal of people with their brains. So, the movie. We did a lot of screenings here, and there's there's screenings coming up that I want to tell you about. I'll be in Chicago tonight, Monday, at a screening of Sort of Trust at the Music Box Theater, I'm doing a QA and a with Joe Swanberg after the movie. I've been doing these Q&As in New York with Lynn Shelton. It's just going to be me and Joe. Lynn's going back to work in uh, Los Angeles this Friday, July 19th. The movie opens at the New Art Theater in Los Angeles. Opera Plaza Cinemas in San Francisco. Shattuck Cinemas in Berkeley. E Street Cinema in Washington, D.C. Tiff Bell Lightbox in Toronto. Kendall Square Cinema in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and the Jacob Burns Film Center in Pleasantville, New York. Wow, this movie's really opening up in places. We didn't know this was going to happen. You kind of hope it happens, I guess, but I didn't anticipate any of this at all. I didn't even think that Lynn was going to be able to make a movie out of what we shot. And not only did she make a movie, but people seem to like the movie, and the press has been crazy. It's been crazy. It's been written up in, in very big outlets that people think are credible. <laughs> New Yorker Magazine, the New York Times, the, the all the ones. We've done a lot of talking on the radio. It's, press tours are crazy, but it's been fun. But the movie's getting very well received. It's a very watchable, funny movie. And this is, I'm not bullshitting you. Am I the kind of guy that really bullshits? Am I the kind of guy that even remembers to self-promote? I like the movie and uh, people are enjoying it. And it's very exciting to, to kind of step into all these theaters and see the uh, the laughter come from uh, the the room. like real laughter. Not the program laughter that happens after you watch a movie that t- ma- took a lot of money to make and the jokes are all worn out before they come out of the faces and you kind of laugh because there's a rhythm to it and you know you're supposed to laugh. That kind of weird surface laugh that kind of hovers somewhere between you know, the brain and just above your heart. Like It's sort of a a, ref- a reflex. Like, <laughs> that, see, that sounded kind of real, but it wasn't. The laughter that happens with this movie comes from a deep place because you can't control it. It's funny how many things we do on reflex patterns, people, vestiges. I don't know if that even fits, but uh, I've established it as the word of the day. Uh, Lynn and I did Q&As at uh, several, we did like five of them. The first night we did at the 92nd Street Y with my friend Sam Lipsight. It was great to see Sam. It was a nice conversation. And then uh, my my family was supposed to come out. Uh, They were all planning to come to the show. That would be a My my father, his wife, Rosie, my uh, aunt, Linda, my uncle, Bill, uh, my cousin, Lisa, my dad's cousin, Jeff, my dad's cousin, uh, Norman uh Lisa's kid uh Nick and his girlfriend I didn't realize it was going to be that many but you know I don't see them that much so I thought well that'll be good and then the movie starts they're not there and then we're you know, about about an hour into the movie an entire parade of my family just kind of waddles into the theater and walks by me and Lynn sitting at the back of the theater I'm like you give me an hour in So I don't know what happened, but it didn't work out exactly right. And uh, now uh, I'm going to another screening today because it's Sunday and they're trying again. And I've already already gotten a text that there was a train problem. Family, man. It's great. Right. It's great. Good times. Uh, So that but that screening was great because Sam was there. And then the the following day, Ben Sinclair hosted one. I never met him before. We had a nice conversation about uh, Southwestern Jews. Uh, not on stage off stage he grew up in uh, phoenix where you know my brother lives and where my ex-wife one of them is from and i spent a lot of time in phoenix so that was exciting people were laughing and asking fun questions and then Tom Sharpling and Brendan McDonald, uh, not together, they moderated uh, a couple of the uh, t- Q&As down here at the IFC. Always good to see Brendan. It's interesting when Brendan moderates a thing with me because, honestly, nobody knows me as well as Brendan McDonald. This guy, has, you know, he has to listen to all of this shit that I'm saying right now twice a week on top of me talking to people. He's actually got pretty good boundaries, but, you know, he knows me real well. So, so that's always an exciting thing. I always learned something about me I didn't know when Brendan talks to me in public. Uh, and, you know, it's one of those moments where it's like, oh, okay, that's okay. Yeah, that is me. You're right. You're right. And now, now everyone knows. And Tom Sharpling, of course, is terrific. And we had a great time with him. And then the next night, Ira Glass, uh, moderated too. That was last night. And uh, we went out to, uh, me and Lynn went out with, uh, with Ira for a little snack afterwards. Had a nice conversation. I don't think I've ever talked that long to Ira Glass in a non-professional environment. And you know what? He's a nice guy. Smart, nice guy. And uh, apparently he's got a radio show or something on. You're yeah, going to have to check that out. This Life is American, is, I think. But uh, so it's been good. The reception has been good. We've had fun, you know, and you know, moving through the vestiges. You know, Lynn has a past here as well in New York, so she got to show me the vestiges of her past in New York in the, in the shape of buildings and you know things that used to be there. That's what you do when you, you've you lived in New York and it's all gotten away from you. It's like, oh, there used to be a place here where people did bad things. I miss that, when people did bad things. Right here at this place and I lived right there, right over the bad things happening. That's the that's memory of New York if you lived here in the 80s or 90s. Oh, back when I lived here, some really horrible shit was going on over here, but you got to know them the people that were doing the horrible shit. So Sean Lennon came to my house and it was, it was kind of exciting. I don't, it's as, as Duncan Jones, uh, David Bowie's son told me, this is a very small club of these children of particular mythic musical presences that are somewhat eternal. I mean, it, I guess it's a matter of taste. You know, I, I, it is, if you're a certain age or a certain person, you know, meeting somebody related or, you know, or the offspring of a Beatle or of David Bowie, you know, or, or of uh, Bob Dylan, you know, there, there's a few people that, you know, where you're kind of like, wow, that's wild. That's your dad? Whoa. But Sean Lennon put out a record. He's put out many records. He's a talented musician. And uh, his most recent album, South of Reality, by the Claypool Lennon Delirium, uh, is available now wherever you get music. Uh, and he's on tour this summer all across the country. You can go to the com for tour dates and cities. Les Claypool, of course, from Primus and many other Les Claypool oriented projects. Les Claypool is one of those guys where it's sort of like he just keeps making stuff. And it's, it's usually kind of amazing and it's weird and it's its own universe. I know, I know I should interview Les Claypool, but I really need to sort of swim through, you know jump into the rabbit hole of claypoolness and, uh, and and figure that out before I do that. But he is doing this. It's a fun record and it actually is fun and funny and a little dark and very instrumentally satisfying. Uh, you can f- kind of feel a-, a lot of different influences in there, but it's a, it's it's a wild record, this record and I enjoyed the record and I listened to a lot of uh, Julie Julian. Oh boy, that's the other one. That's Sean's. I didn't talk to Julian. I talked to Sean about Julian, but I get my kids of John Lennon mixed up. So in a, in very rare circumstances, but I just I just did it just that. How often does that happen? I didn't mean Julian, I meant Sean Lennon. How often do you get to say that? But I talked to Sean. Uh I listened to a lot of his music. I listened to a lot of Yoko's music because as you know, I just watched that documentary uh called uh, Above Us Only Sky about the process of making Imagine and that part of the the life there. But I, you know, I was sort of like pleasantly surprised because, you know, wow, because Sean worked with Yoko, and you know, obviously it's his mother. But it was a good conversation, and I never know how delicate it is. Like, do we talk about your dad right out of the gate? You know, I don't want to be disrespectful to your talent or or any of that. So, how do you manage that? You know, I don't know the guy, but we actually had a really, a really sweet conversation. We had things in common in terms of our brains, and uh, there's some really interesting moments in this. So uh, this is me and Sean Lennon back at the garage.
1: It's only recently that I've even started calling myself a guitar player. Yeah. Because I just kind of, I don't know, it just seemed, it <laughs> it wasn't my identity because I i never sat and did too many scales and I was never trying yeah, to shred neither. or anything. Right. I was always just trying to make music, you know, write right. songs. So yeah, I never got a Les Paul, and it did seem kind of like the holy grail.
0: But you're playing serious guitar. I mean, you're playing leads and you're doing the thing.
1: Yeah, I've been playing more leads in this band. I think mainly because Les Claypool is sort of known as an instrumentalist and right. a sort of athletic player. Yeah, and I think it was it's more expected, but at the same time. It's also that he sort of encouraged me yeah to to solo more which has been nice because i have never really considered myself a a a guitar player per se. I was more of a songwriter in my mind and yeah. he, and he was the one who was like, "No, nah, man, like, you know, you got some traps. Like, why don't you play?" And I'm like, "Really? Like, you play with, you know, you play with everybody." Why do
0: we judge ourselves like that? Cuz if you really think about Because I'm not even a professional musician, but I judge myself. Like, why do we think, what do we think being a guitar player is? Like, virtuosity? But if you listen to most of the leads you probably like, they're just like, they're not... Yeah. They're
1: not like virtuosity. Sure. And I mean it's it's almost a, it's it might be a kind of arrogance or something cuz you know what do you expect yourself to be like, you know?
0: Right. What do you want to be Ingwe Momstein? Yeah, exactly.
1: Who wants that. I can't even listen to that. It's like listening to math. Yeah. So <laughs> I've, I I I I felt really good about him, you know, encouraging me to take more solos and then you know, it's funny. I mean not not to like bring this up in an in, in ego kind of way, yeah. but I, I wound up on on the cover of Guitar Player with him, and I was just like, whoa, what's going on? I mean, I just, it definitely you was incredible? surprising. Yeah, it totally surprised me, because I just never expected that to happen. I yeah. mean, when I, and, you know, when I grew up, the but people exciting, that were on right? that, it, it was exciting. It was like, wow, but I also still don't fully accept that I can play guitar that well. And, you know, I think it's actually, you know, the self-critical part of your brain, it's like always you know, always critiquing every little thing you right. can do or not do. And I think, to a large degree, that part of my brain is correct. I mean, I, you know, yeah, I, but- I am a sort of poser with the guitar. I mean, I, I'll try, but, I, there you know, I never put in the hours to actually get the dexterity that someone like Les has on the bass. I think people imagine him, as I did, to literally be living in some, you know, wizard castle, <laughs> K- you know, in the <laughs> yeah, woods and, yeah. and taking mushrooms every day. But he's actually... Uh, he he's 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 really surreal and oddball in his art but in his in in private he's he's a responsible dad you know he's yeah. running his wine business and, and he's uh, fishing Yeah he's fishing all the time and fixing his cars and he's a real like reliable dude But it seems like I just guess musically he
0: seems to be a like uh he likes to get out there You
1: know what, well, what I mean Well I think he's one of those people that is just sincerely unique in his approach to his instrument and right. to songwriting and that's really rare, you know? I think a lot of people try to find originality, and maybe you can get there through just a kind of methodology of, right. of, of trial and error. But yeah. with him, I think he just has an innate uh, perspective on music that... Yeah. That uh, it just comes naturally to him, and you, you know he's one of the only players, which is especially difficult on bass. Yeah. Whereas if you you hear about thirty seconds of him playing on anything, and you kind of know, oh, that's Les Claypool. If you know his playing, <laughs> exactly,
0: especially bass,
1: which is really hard to do on bass because, yeah. um, well, you know, it just it's sort of a rhythm section instrument, so it takes a back seat often. And he he treats the bass the way you know lead guitarists tr- you know treat treat the the, yeah. the lead guitar for sure and um you know there've been people who took bass solos before him but he he has this he has an oddball approach it's fun too he's it's a really fun, fun bass player no he's he's honestly one of the best players i've ever played with and it's just made me a much better musician having to keep up with him
0: the one thing i realized in just playing the the, the crappy way i play is that you know it it's about you being able to communicate with however you play, like some of the the most notorious players, just in relation to Guitar Player magazine, it's not because they're virtuosos. It's just because they you can you can feel them through how they play. Like you can identify them, like you just said about Les. But yeah. that doesn't like like Keith Richards is no genius, but he's Keith Richards.
1: Yeah. Right. Well, I've, I mean, you know, it, it's it gets it's semantical at that point because I think I would consider him a genius if we're talking about rock and roll. Right, Guitar but but, but it's
0: sim- it's not complicated. Yeah, you know, it's like it's his own. He has figured out a way to be at one with that thing and express himself uniquely through
1: it, and and it's not, it's simple. Well, yeah, I mean, I agree with you, and 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 that's why I think it's interesting to me that taste, yeah, seems to be a more important factor in making good music, at least than skill, because as you said, there's all these people who have chops. Uh, out the window, and like you don't want to listen to their music. Whereas, you know, people like Lou Reed, who you know, uh, he wasn't an accomplished guitar player, S- somehow he connects with music. So, I think it's more about your feel sure. and your taste than anything, and, I, and
0: also the working of the people you're playing with. That's a beautiful thing about being a musician is that, like, you know, you got a few other people with you. And the combination of them, even when you're not feeling great, you know, or maybe you think you're not playing up to where you need to be. Everybody works together, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, in in the best case scenario, there are are people who are just singular and want to do it alone. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, not completely alone, but there are some Stevie Wonder records or Prince records where they basically played... You know, yeah, right. the vast majority <laughs> right. of the yeah. instruments, including drums and everything. It's crazy. Yeah, and those people manage to get this kind of jam going with themselves. It's yeah. like they're, they're a multiplicity of musicians. Right. But for the most part, I think music is collaborative. And I think that's what makes it so hard because these bands, when they find their chemistry and their success, I think there's also like an an inherent resentment that a lot of people have towards each other because they rely on something that they can't quite quantify, but right, and you know, they can't do it on their own, and they go off to do their solo career, right, and and it doesn't work, right, as well. And I think that's that's therein lies the complexity of you know, and then there's the expectation, bands. right, there's the expectation of them to deliver on their sound
0: or whatever they put out before by the label by the audience.
1: Yeah, and that's an interesting thing, you know, for example, Mick Jagger's solo career, like it's famous that he <laughs> tried to move on. I think it was yeah. in the 80s. Yeah. And it was hard and and it's it's hard to cuz on paper it would make sense as you said like it's there's nothing Keith is playing that is impossible to learn for the average guitar player. But so, it's hard to play it like him, but yeah, you can learn it. Yeah, but there, but, but you you'd imagine that at Mick's level he could get musicians that would yeah, you, know, but, you know, fit the bill right. enough to make it compelling, but it didn't work out. And that's, it's really interesting. Actually. But the other
0: side of that is when Keith did his solo, you're like, oh, these would be great stone songs.
1: Inversely, exactly, yeah, yeah. in the same way.
0: But, you know, even like, you know, I just read this thing about uh, McCartney on tour, which, which was an amazing observation. It was kind of haunting that... Like he's doing these stadium shows doing the Beatles songs and everyone's like yay and 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 he said that they there he he actually accused the audience of being like a black hole but but it seemed kind of really like when I read it I'm like that's heavy but what happened was is that he's playing arenas and when he's doing Beatles songs, all the phones are up and then he does one off the new album all the phones stop yeah so you just see this you know a thousand points of light and then he does whatever the hell the song is
1: right. and they all go the blackness out. yeah it's Isn't so that a fu- trip it is so <laughs> funny how the cell phone has supplanted the lighter as well and also the experience of being there i mean people are experiencing it in real time through their phone it's once removed it's, it's very crazy. meta
0: it's really odd so before we talk about specifically the, the i cuz i, I there's a couple um songs on the new album and one on the last one you did it last that are that are dark and 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 one one is i think you, you know potent and and kind of haunting and sad the the Oxycontin girl out uh, song on that last one yeah but the one on this one about Parsons, the you know the uh, the the Crowleyite um, rocket scientist, yeah, who used to hang out with Hubbard and his wife and that whole business, so I, yeah, as a subject matter, I'd like I want to discuss how that comes up, sure, because you know, so few people know that story. I think they might have tried to make a movie about it. What was Parsons' first
1: name? Was it John or Robert? Or Jack Parsons. Jack Parsons. Uh, yeah, I, I, um, I someone gave me a book called Sex and Rockets, uh, which yeah. was just it's a biography of Jack Parsons, which I realize now is. Controversial in some bits. I I don't think it's considered the official you know uh, historical document. Right. I think there's some subjective stuff in it. I mean that's probably true though of all biographies, right. which is another subject. Of course. But um, it's fascinating. And you know, as you said, he was he was a JPL rocket scientist. In fact, he founded JPL. Some people say that uh, JPL doesn't stand for Jet Propulsion Labs, but Jack Parson Labs because he was sort of you know right. And he's
0: and he's conjuring demons with. L. Ron Hubbard. Meanwhile, by doing he Crowley was also rituals. yeah. He and was also magic, right? Exactly.
1: So he's in OTO, which yeah. is the Aleister Crowley right religion. Yeah, and he becomes a Magister Templi, which apparently is uh, the head of that, I guess, branch. Yeah, and uh, I think also L. Ron had wanted to be in OTO and wasn't allowed in or something. So there was some kind of tension there, whereas L. Ron wound up. Maybe Sleeping with Jack's Wife or right. something odd like that. Like, or it was a threesome and it was sex magic. Yeah, or they Dressed were... as Goats or something. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, so I just, I mean, I love that story. The thing about The Delirium is that it's kind of a whimsical project. Yeah. More so than anything I've ever done before. Right. So it's sort of given me permission to really have fun with the lyrics. Yeah. And, and even the music as well. But it's more playful. So I'm always looking for fun stories to encapsulate. And, um, you know, it. I really like looking for real life stories to, to to write these kind of surreal carnivalesque songs because, you know, it's a cliche, but life is definitely stranger than fiction. So, you know, this is a true story. It just seemed like the perfect fodder for... For you and life For a delirium song. Yeah. yeah. And there's a lot of examples like that. Like, um, there's a song called Amethyst Realm on the record that I wrote about this girl I'd read about in England who... Who claims to have cheated on her fiance with a ghost? Yeah, and I think the (laughs) fiance walked in on them somehow, and uh, she breaks up with him and renounces living men because she says, you know, phantom sex is so much better. Sure. So I thought that was just amazing. So I I turned that into one way to, to
0: to well, it's one particular point of view on masturbation. You know, if you're not using porn, aren't we all? having phantom sex when we do that
1: yeah i mean look if that's all but but i think you know i think her claim is ghost coming it's interesting and her name was actually amethyst realm which was just like that sounds like a song title it's trippy but a lot of the subject matter is just uh kind of just me looking at how weird the world can be there's another song called boriska which is about a real kid in in Russia yeah, who through his mom sort of declared that he was uh, from Mars. Yeah. And uh, then his mother and I, some people around him claimed that he had magical powers sure. or psychic powers and yeah. that he could read at three months old or something. Right. And my whole take on it was just after watching a couple of videos because his mother's a doctor, she seemed like she was in charge. And so I don't know if this is true, but my take was she put him up to it and the kids just looks kind of miserable, but is like regurgitating all this stuff he's been told to say, yeah. and it's sort of a scheme, you know. It's sure, a, it's, a, a, it's a con. Yeah, it's a con. So that song is about that. But well, yeah, I mean,
0: but there's that. America is, is such a, a fertile landscape for that kind of like you know looking at things in, in a satirical way or looking at things that aren't satirical and realizing like what the fuck. Like they're the easily charmed by fools is like. That's that's a fundamentally American song.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, Easily Charmed is more of a less song, and so is the other one you mentioned, which was uh, I forget the first one you asked. Oh, oh yeah, Oxycontin, Oxycontin girl. girl. I think for less that was just, you know, again, yeah, it's pretty real life stuff. I mean, obviously we have a a major Oxycontin epidemic in this country, and I think. Right. Having kids made him especially worried about that, you know, kids of college age. The and, turn
0: in that song where, you know, the boyfriend turns her out
1: you know, and, and, and given the world we live in to have to listen to those lyrics and go like, Yep. Yeah. You know what exactly. I mean? Exactly. And you know, he's lucky. Both of his kids are totally straight edged and really smart and cool. But I think there was a moment where he just you know, he he, he always talks to me about how having kids has influenced his universe and that it, you're, he he describes it as your universe goes from you being the sun and things orbit you yeah. to suddenly there's a sun that's your kid and you're one of the planets orbiting it like that's and the and you have to your... make sure he's he's
0: nourished yeah you're, exactly you're a nourishing planet yeah so
1: I think um, yeah some of the songs or some of the narrative perspective are come from him just you know having kids and worrying about that
0: and I I like that sort of both records kind of move through you know you know just straight up kind of like. Uh, like a lab, like kind of uh, orchestrated psychedelic trips, but also there's kind of like some Floydy stuff in there, and then there's some like Zappy kind of thing. Like it kind of moves through, like him and you, but it, like you can hear the influences in there, you know?
1: Yeah. Well, I just feel lucky that I've managed to find myself in a project where we can just be that playful. Yeah. You know, and we've been given permission because under the guise of Prague or Psych, we're allowed to just have fun. You, you got the permission anyways. I mean, yeah. like, you can do whatever
0: the fuck you want, really. Sure, I mean, sure. You're not in a high-pressure situation. You I guess to,
1: that's always true. You want to sell a few records, but it's not like you're competing for, you know, billboard charts, are you? Sure, but I guess, no, it's not so much that. It's just, It's just there's something about... There's something about the, the, the character of this project, whereas it doesn't, it doesn't feel odd to have a five-minute intro of noise and, and, and random you know jumbling spoken word or something. And no one blinks twice, whereas I think in other projects, if I did that, I think people would be like, what is this? You know, there's just, you know, no, it's, it's an it. expectation kind of well,
0: thing. Well, that's a question that, like, sort of going back now, that, like, I remember you, because I used to do comedy, Back in the day at the Boston Comedy Club, which used to be above the Baggett Inn, like there there was a period there where you were playing in there. Oh, yeah. yeah. That like, was years ago, probably. I think it was before you even recorded. I think it was like the, some of the first outings with whatever combo you had put together at the time. Yeah. And well, like, I, I remember it was sort of a, a thing, like, you know, like Sean Lennon's downstairs, like, what does he do? Yeah. <laughs> and
1: you're like, yeah. Well, it was weird for me at first, like, uh, I think I was incredibly naive, and I had no idea how people or the world might might you know might it might feel about me. I just I just just because I was I was in a group of musicians in New York. We were all friends. There was the Beastie Boys, and there was this band I joined called Chibomato. And were you in your teens? I joined Chibomato, I think before I turned twenty. I I don't remember the and exact that was before date. your first record. My first record was 2021, yeah. So it was right around that time. But it was weird because I just I sort of took it for granted, you know, we all played in each other's bands, yeah. we hung out, we played shows, and then so I went to do a solo record thinking, "Oh, it's just going to be like that." And it just wasn't. It was Because of the legacy? Yeah. It yeah. was and, and it's funny that I didn't anticipate that. I mean, I should have. You but, really didn't. Well, I mean, I ima- I knew that it wasn't going to be exactly the same, but the degree to which the degree to which I, it kind of made me feel I guess invisible in a way because yeah. what I noticed is that a lot of people who don't know me, I mean, because I'd only grown up with immediate friends and family and you know teachers and school, yeah. I wasn't exposed to the public per right. se. So I didn't realize the degree to which people would find it impossible to just sort of look at me and Separate. form an opinion yeah. based on me right. and not project. Either how I'm not fulfilling or am fulfilling some some idea they have about my dad or my parents. Right. It took me years to even understand that. Were you insulated on purpose? Was that your mom's intent? Well, no. I I don't mean I was insulated. I just simply mean I'd never been public. I hadn't. Most people are. are You weren't weren't doing something
0: that was demanding public
1: attention. Yeah, I just had never had press or or you know media stuff. I mean a little bit, but. It was it was shocking in a way, and it's taken me a lifetime to kind of completely internalize it, and understand what it's all about. And now I don't really blame people because I understand it's like you know, if you have this person that seems significant in your mind, even though you never knew them, but because of the music, like my dad, yeah. it's 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 unreasonable to expect them to see me and not be clouded by you know the triggers of of their ideas of this person. It's so bigger than yeah I think anyone I mean maybe not
0: you but can imagine because like I mean you know I go through my life I don't think about the Beatles every day you know but but I watched the recent documentary that your your mom must have signed off on because she's a big part of it and mm-hmm. it really reframes her in the history of the Beatles that above us only sky mm-hmm. right and I just watched it, you know, in it's on Netflix and I'll watch that. And I was like, I, I found myself going like, oh my God, there's so much footage of John and just talking, you know, like, and like, I, I became like crazy and yeah. I, and I had this moment where I'm like, I did not realize how much, uh, how important that guy was in my, in my brain. Right. And, and I imagine for most people that grew up with that, especially that generation, I mean, it's, it's like bigger than life. You, you know so yeah. you got to deal with that you know you, you when you decided to do music you didn't really was
1: it sort of a family business thing or did you didn't really anticipate that you would be up against it well look there's two things i would want to say to that is what's interesting i find is that as big as the significance of the beatles or my right. dad might be to the biggest fan right i think what people underestimate is like that still doesn't compare to how important a father is yeah. to, a, to a child, right? right? So, however, anyone frames it to me, and often, you know, it's, it's almost yeah. weekly, someone will say, You have no idea right. how important <laughs> your dad was to me. And, you know, I, I'm not cynical. I'm, right. I understand it. I'm right. like, Thanks. But there's also this part of me that, that feels like, Well, you actually have no idea. Right, right. Well, yeah. maybe you could, like, you would have an idea if you just imagined how important your parents were to you. Right. And that's, that's a big deal you know so i feel like my relationship to my dad sometimes i feel like it's hijacked or something in right. that in that if it's people don't even seem to consider it
0: but well, that's very interesting because like you know when you know when tragedy came you know you were so young but you know you're dealing with the absence of of a father and they're they're dealing with the absence of a, a, a almost a mythological being.
1: Right. And not to be, you know, not to be critical but right. it's je- like for the most part as real as their feelings are. Right. It's a dream as opposed to what I'm talking about is a physical person who, mm-hmm. you know, taught me how to cut, you know, my food <laughs> at dinner, you know. Um, <laughs> which actually leads to the other question you had which is, you know, when I started music, did I was I doing it for you know, because it was a family thing. Honestly, I kind of feel like a bit of an imposter. And, you know, I've been talking about this with guitar. Like, I don't consider myself a guitar player or whatever. But compared to all my professional musician friends, my introduction to music wasn't natural in the way that it was for most of them. Meaning a lot of them were the best musician in their school or or uh, they just had a prodigal talent, or they got a scholarship because they were just so good at piano. Those are the people you know, not just people who are like, I wanna get chicks and play guitar. Well, no, I think all of us are motivated <laughs> through wanting to get chicks, you know, I mean, <laughs> at least boys, but yeah. or some boys, Yeah. but um, but what I mean is like, I was never like this prodigy where, where teachers were, were like, my God, you've got an ear, like you've, right. we've gotta send you to Juilliard. So I never had that sort of natural, path into music for me it really was what you mentioned this the absence of my father was like there was this huge void in my life I associated him with music yeah and so I just played music because it was sort of it was the only way to kind of try to fill that void because as I played music as I learned the Beatles songs and learned to play guitar it just made me feel like I was connecting to him or right I mean not literally spending time with him but but as close as I could, you know, render to that kind of uh, connection with him because his music was an extension of him. So me playing music was really... It came from childhood trauma, basically. It wasn't because, like, oh, I'm, you know... I've got this talent. There was always a better musician in my school. I mean, there's always people with perfect pitch or whatever Mm -hmm. who go to Juilliard and become legit musicians. You know, I I always had... uh, a certain amount of talent but it was never a prodigal i wouldn't sure say. so yeah for me you know that's why it's kind of odd when i'm looking back at my life it's interesting because i came to music more out of a kind of as a kind as a kind of instinct to try to heal oh yeah childhood trauma as opposed to you know because i was good at it or something how old were you when you died? i it? was five and do you uh, how do you have intact memories of him alive? Well that's the other interesting thing. Um I don't know if there's any legit neuroscience yeah. around PTSD but and memory? Yeah. But for me the years leading up to my dad's death Yeah. I have more memories than I think I should. Really? Yeah, I'll, quite a bit. And I te- and I I've checked them as well cuz I you know like the the name of this doll that I had, or yeah, this person that worked for my parents in Japan when I was only three or four, like I remember things yeah, um and I know memory is unreliable, and every time you remember you 're not remembering the moment you 're right. remembering the memory, and then right. you change it so but i i I think something about the trauma of that really kind of uh, made those memories indelible, mm. and then you know my my teen years my memories like n- yeah, <laughs> not you know, so who good knows what <laughs> so there's something about the trauma that really woke me up and um yeah i'll never forget it i mean it's not fun to talk about but i have a lot of memories of uh you know um i mean you might know but there was there were crowds of people in central park sure. which was right outside of our apartment right. and um you know it was definitely <laughs> It was a rude awakening. Suddenly, you know, I didn't really know even what the Beatles were, and then suddenly there were th- like a thousand people outside church yeah. singing these songs twenty four yeah. hours for months and for years. Actually, <laughs> they would come back on on my dad's birthday, and uh, and uh, it was it was very surreal. And how did your like you know in terms of because your mother very musical as well, despite what people might think. Thank you for saying that. I yeah. appreciate that. Yeah, because <laughs> I agree too. She. She, um, I mean, the reality is she's she taught me more music than my dad did simply because she was around. Sure. So she was making records. I mean, that's how I learned to to mix a record, what a compressor was, what this kind of mic did, what EQ was. I learned that all from my mom. Being in the studio? Yeah.
0: Well, yeah, and, and, and I, I just, like, I was curious to know... You know, as you got older and got more interested in music and and started to have this experience with your father's work, and then you know, with your mother actively working, that you know, how, how did your mother compensate for for you know John being gone in your memory, like you know, either emotionally or
1: or as having that role of of being a single parent? Well, you know, I I, I wouldn't want to necessarily speak for her because I was very young, but, um, I'm not, I'm not sure exactly how to answer that question because I've never quite thought about it that way. Yeah. But I would say that, um, I would say that my mom's parenting was unconventional in that she, she didn't want to repeat what I think she would consider the mistakes of her parents or her parents' generation. Uh Uh-huh. And I think my father had felt that way too yeah. for the for the time that he was raising me. Um and I guess most parents feel that way. You're you're trying to be an improvement on what you had. Yeah, of course. And I do think there are incremental improvements. So I think what distinguished my mom's uh parenting was that she didn't want to control me in the way she sh- they tried to control her. Yeah and so she was very respectful of me from an early age and kind of treated me as a sovereign individual so in a way i guess that's what a lot of maybe hippie generation parents did they sort yeah. of they sort of went for a kind of mutual respect friendship kind of thing mm-hmm. which which was definitely radical i guess com, you know in right. in comparison to the generation before who kind of treated kids as slaves and But also looking out
0: for, you know, your best interest and and trying to imbue you with a sense of of moral, uh, you you know, uh, decency.
1: Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I wasn't raised with any particular religion, but my mother definitely has a very, she has a very specific moral compass. And, um, yeah, I think part of that morality was to respect individuals and their their autonomy sure and kids as well i mean she would always say that to me that she disliked that kids were condescended to when she was growing up and yeah. sort of their their desires and wants were sort of overlooked
0: and, and it seems that like a lot of uh, uh, the source of a lot of her creativity is is childlike and informed by you know trauma and and you know grown up fears
1: yeah, well, she came from a very conservative family in Japan. Yeah. And um you know, it's interesting how life works, but I think a lot of the 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 restricted you know, life she had in terms of you know, social mores and 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 behaviors yeah. that were expected of her, I think kind of made her the radical artist right. that she was. Yeah. Um you know, famously, my grandfather told her that when she was starting to play classical piano, that women can't be pianists or, yeah. or successful pianists. And you know, that's she always talked about. She always talks about that that story as if it was the thing that gave her the impetus and the energy to. To become who she is, yeah. She was like, "Fuck, Fuck you, you Dad. Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
0: That's, a, that's a lot of uh, people's impetus. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Fuck you, Dad. <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly. <laughs> I mean, it's well, it's interesting because, I mean, I just find the relationship between trouble or trauma or difficulty in life and 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 sort of successful outcomes in terms of the characters of the people who go through it. Mm-hmm. It's sort of a paradox, isn't it? I mean, life is very odd in that way. Um, what I mean is like you can't, you know, obviously some of the the most interesting people tend to have had a lot of difficulty yeah. at some point. Sure, It's sort of the way that you learn about, the most profound things in life, and you can't really get there unless you kind of have some, I guess, suffering or something. Sure. Which I just find that to be so interesting. It seems like a paradox, but, you know, often when people get even diagnosed with some illness or something, they always say, like, you know, now I'm awake. Like, now I understand. I understand myself, or I appreciate. Takes that. Yeah, and there's something
0: well you, you get harsh it.
1: about that reality <laughs> you well know. a lot of people move towards uh,
0: as secure a life as they can have that you know something that that like might seem to guarantee them a certain sense of safety whether it's institutional or job or all that other stuff and then they kind of like just lock into a pattern whereas creative people if they really pursue that they're always going to be at emotional and physical risk because of the lifestyle they live or the risks they take emotionally so or, or if they're you know really talented, usually that comes with a certain amount of doubt and addiction problems or whatever is going to happen, so you know they're out there and the, you know you know battling this stuff you know day to day and if they survive it they they come with a they come upon a real wisdom, I would think,
1: yeah, and it's interesting to me, I mean this is just you know philosophically interesting, but people can tell you these lessons oh, yeah. when you're a kid, and you can even. Take it seriously and try to internalize the wisdom. Right, but it's in. It isn't until you go through those things that you truly understand it, and you know. Right, and and then you have your own story about it that you can tell
0: somebody else who'll be like, "Yeah,
1: right." Yeah, and it's and it's. I just wish it wasn't that way. I wish I wish you could just be told, (laughs) and then you get it. But somehow our biology is. Is is stubborn? Yeah, fuck you, Dad. But in, but even in a in <laughs> yeah. a in a in a super organism yeah. way, in terms of the human race, it's like, for example, with something like global warming. Yeah, it seems like no matter how much we talk about it, I fear that it's going to take some kind of real world consequence, like an experience that will then obviously. You know, then we'll take yeah, I, it seriously.
0: I, I I think that I feel this that way too, and it makes me uh, sad as well. I, I do. I'm doing a, a bit about it now, just sort of you know, what is it going to take, y- and 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 at that moment, will we be able to adapt? Whereas, like you would think, right now, it's like, well, it's pretty clear. You know yeah. what what has to happen. It's 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 you know just yeah. dumped like six feet of hail in Mexico, and yeah. we're just sort of like that's eh, an anomaly. Yeah, I, I don't know. But people are also in denial because, uh, you know, I think either out of shame or out of uh, a sense of uh, hopelessness yeah. or they, you know, they or they just don't want to
1: believe it's true. Well, denial must be evolutionarily n- useful. Of course. Um, I was here. I, I, I was I heard something about how it's not enough from an evolutionary standpoint to be a good liar because pe- people are, humans are just so naturally sensitive I mean that's why we love good acting because we're all quite nuanced in our perceptions of facial muscles and, uh-huh. and vocal tone so it's not enough to be good at lying it, you have to also kind of believe it yourself got to sell it you have to have you have to have the ability to lie to yourself yeah because only then can you truly not get caught right, that's by the enemy the, or whatever. Yes,
0: well that's why we have this president
1: yeah for example <laughs> yeah. but i find that to be truly interesting because the idea is that believing your own bullshit is an evolutionary you know uh a uh, skill that was yeah. selected it's for in all skill. of us yeah so i mean it's not you know obviously we all know people who are who are too far gone in that direction and we're just shocked i mean you know yeah. I, we've encountered like really you know do you do you really believe what you're saying yeah. but i think the truth is that we all have that ability of course and if we hadn't had it, we would have died and our genes wouldn't have passed on. So we we, we are the survivors of a a lying species, oh, which a, I find to be interesting. Wow. It is really interesting. You can write a song about that? It's a little complicated, but, you know, <laughs> it's so hard to whistle along to. We, we
0: are the, what is it? We are the- The survivors just, of, a, a yeah, of a lying species. Of a lying species. First wine.
1: <laughs> it's, a, it's a hit. Definitely going to be a hit. If I can get my mom to just do some wailing over it, <laughs> then we'll have something. <laughs> She'd do it. <laughs> <laughs> she? Oh, she's always up for it. So, like, all right, so going back, though,
0: I think it's interesting that in order to build a relationship with your father's absence that you,
1: you know, integrated his work into yourself. It is interesting, and I don't know if, you know, it's kind of, you know, pop psychology on my part, too, because it's it's not like a professional told me this. This is my own interpretation of me. And so, you you know, I could just be making it up. I don't know, but it felt that way. Um, The reason I say that is because I remember playing piano before I could play or had a lesson or anything, and just playing it knowing that that was his piano and kind of missing him. So, I mean, God, it sounds... Like a sob story. But it's true. So I mean so that it was is, my a
0: sad story. <laughs> yeah, it was sad.
1: But um you know, I remember the first time I figured out some of his songs. Yeah. It felt really good. What'd you start with? Um I think the first one I learned was uh Hide Your Love Away. Hmm. That Norwegian Wood and um Um Julia was the hardest one. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean that in fact still today I can't play this one F minor uh nine chord. It's 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 it hurts. Yeah. <laughs> Even though I play guitar every day, it just never stops hurting, that first fret. But I, yeah, it felt really good in a way that it, it, doesn't, it never felt learning other people's songs. I mean, I loved learning Hendrix and you know, right. Cream, but that was always just like an accomplishment on the instrument, whereas learning one of my dad's songs felt kind of like a sacred thing. It felt like an intimate, yeah. spiritual kind of thing.
0: Well, it, it also has genetic resonance.
1: Nice. I think you should coin that term too. That's another hit, <laughs> another hit song.
0: That's the name of my next CD.
1: Genetic resonance.
0: <laughs> so, like, because it seemed to me like listening to all this stuff, that like on the first record you were you were really making a, a a a sort of you know fairly sophisticated pop record, right? You know, employing some of those chords and 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 that style of
1: writing. Is that true? Honestly, I, I'd like to give you an intelligent response to that, but I don't know. My first record was me literally making up a song a day yeah, and then mixing it that night and moving on. I think I did the whole album in two or three weeks. Yeah. And I think it was my mom's influence. She really believes in spontaneity. yeah. So she really believes in channeling lyrics, like they just right, come to her. Right, right. And I really looked up to her, so I made a record in that fashion, thinking, thinking that people would think it was cool that I was doing something that was like a diary, like a demo, like something mm-hmm. really intimate but not overworked, and just sort of a stream of consciousness thing. Yeah. But then I realized when we were releasing it that there was kind of no way to make that clear. It just even right. if I said that it was just like no, this is your debut. This is right. you know, this is John Lennon's son deciding to you know make a statement about who he is as a musician. Whereas for me, the statement was supposed to be like oh, I'm gonna kind of I'm gonna be really loose and and not uh, polished about this yeah. in order to to counter expectations of me getting a big record deal or something right. like my brother had done, and you know I respected him for that, but. I felt like, and I had been offered those kinds of lucrative deals where like we'll get you this guy to write your song and this producer and it just didn't feel like me and because I was hanging out with all these indie cats like the Beasties and and Sonic Youth, to me it just seemed cooler to do something understated. And but, New York, too. Yeah. yeah. And so it was really off the cuff and kind of random. I mean, I look at the lyrics sometimes, I'm like, man, what was I thinking? It literally was just like, the cat in the mat, okay, done. Yeah, yeah. You know, because I, I sort of, <laughs> I think I was also scared to work on the lyrics too yeah. much because I was scared to try to be smart. So I was just like, you know, forget it. Yeah. Just just write stuff that rhymes. Right. So that record is a little hard for me to listen to in a way, to be honest. It's like, some of it I really like, but... um. it's kind of like listening back to like some Walkman recording that you made when you're just jamming with your friends and you're all just like you know hanging (laughs) out and you're like hey there was a cool moment there but I it's I think I was so shy that not really not really working too hard on completing a, a a real album whatever that meant was my way of sort of Easing my way into music and in sort of in, through a back door or, or sideways as opposed to taking it on, yeah, you know, right. head yeah. first.
0: And and, we'll, and and because of the reception of that record or
1: that the the, the sort of rude awakening the of the ruthless reception. I mean, I'm sure you've seen Spinal Tap, yeah, you know, when, when they're just like reading the bad reviews, right. and Rob Reiner's like, you know, you've had some terrible reviews throughout yeah. your career, and uh, this one review comes to mind, it's simply a a two-word review it's uh for the album shark sandwich shit sandwich <laughs> they're like you can't print that is that even true like no but yeah i had a shit sandwich review. i'll never forget it. it was nme basically just said are the beastie boys releasing sorry no hopers on the as a joke on the world mm. and, I, and that was it that was the whole review i was like wow, wow that's my shit sandwich review but to be honest there was no negative review for that album that I didn't agree with on some level, deep down, because it, it's true. It wasn't meant to be, you know, something that kicked ass. It was just. It was more like little bits of of a diary of, right. of a very naive kid.
0: But did those reviews, like you like you said, kind of like was that you know more the moment of of
1: what it would what you would have to go through to be a public person? Doing something well, I think that would have been true if I had made a different kind of record. So it was kind of compounded, meaning like not only was there the difficulty of, you know, being a son of, but then there's also the difficulty of the kind of odd record I made and trying to, you know, each of those things would have been difficult independently, but together was just kind of a a clusterfuck. Did it spin you out? It definitely made me not want to make a solo record for a long time, and it confused me. I didn't. In fact, to this day, I still. Sort of have cold feet about doing solo work. It's mainly because, well, I don't know. I mean, I want. I was going to ask you actually. Right. Do you? Because this is how I feel. Do you feel like when you get a really negative s- s- statement, review, yeah. or just even like a, a YouTube comment, do you feel like it only will hurt? It only hurts if you kind of agree on some level. That's how I feel. Yeah. I, no. I I think that's true. Like if you don't agree at all. Why would it hurt you, right? I mean, you're just like, oh, you're crazy. then.
0: But, but the problem is, depending on y- y- you know your your insecurity, you know, almost all the negative ones are going to be like, nah, I never really thought that about that. But that's, that's true. probably true. <laughs> you can take it too far. Sure, you just use it as a bat. You, yeah. You, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. it, Like you integrate like, and then when you see a positive one, there's part of you that's sort of like, nah, that's yeah. they're, they're, well, I don't do the comment thing anymore. Uh, or look at it, I, and I've learned how to to deal. I'm I'm very sensitive, so it's all going to hurt. Right. But like I've I've learned to be like, just wait till it goes away and move on with your life. Right. But you know they're trying to hurt you. Sure. I mean, if somebody does a sophisticated, you know, real piece of criticism. Yeah. You know, with with interesting points, you know, you can integrate some of that. I think, and and those are the ones where I'm like, well, that's sort of true. Like, you know, usually a, a real review or a real piece of criticism will will say some, you know. Almost good things, you know. Then you know one really good thing, and then like two paragraphs of like what was wrong. Yeah. And you know if it's if it's well thought out, you know sometimes that that that's encouraging in some weird way. Sure. Yeah. That you know it, it kind of makes you more like what well, I'm gonna. I, I never thought of that that way, and now I'm gonna integrate that. Well, into if it if it really
1: resonates and it's a, an accurate criticism, that's like a gift in a way. Right. But I guess from my perspective is it's I, I wish in a way that a lot of the people who say is that me? Sorry. I'm so sorry. Bro. It's okay, buddy. You good? Yeah. It's Paul's son. Oh. He's a sweet guy. Um, <laughs> but was, oh yeah, I just, I often wish that the people who were spewing the venom about me, yeah. I just, I don't wish they would stop. I just wish they knew that I totally agree with them. <laughs> like then there's nothing they said that is like a new idea to me, you yeah, know? Right. It's like, it's like not, it's like, well, that's, that's the only difference. that's the thing in your head. Yeah,
0: you, like, you know, yeah I, I envy people that aren't that hard on themselves, but I just can't, it's not something I can
1: manufacture. It's not one of those genetically alterable things that I can just believe. It's also a cultural thing maybe because I grew up in New York on the Upper West Side and there was, I think it was- You guys still in that house? Well, my mother is, yeah. Oh, really? But it, I think there was a sort of uh, an unspoken idea that the more self-critical you could be, was proportional to like what a good person you were. Like it was sort of rewarded being self-critical. I guess. Whereas if if you weren't self-critical, you were teased, and made fun of. You in, know, unless you were the teaser. Right, which is that you're the a bully. Worst, right. So I feel like I was sort of raised with that value. You know, it's like a, it's like the Woody Allen perspective on life, and that was considered. Being a thoughtful person. Right. You know, self loathing right. was thoughtfulness in a way. Whereas I don't think that's true of all cities. But
0: it's right.
1: It, but it's, there's also a false humility to it and there's also a sort of narcissism to it. Well, that's I, I'm glad you said that because I was going to say it because, well, that's what I meant about, you know, Feeling bad that you're not Ingwe Melmsdien is a kind of narcissism. It's like, what, like who do you think you are? Right, like, you're not <laughs> that, even close. Yeah, like right. you know, it's inverted I mean? narcissism. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you're just it's an it's an excuse to spend all your thoughts on yourself without you know thinking you're a narcissist because you're not grandiose. Right. So when you do the first record and you have this thing like
0: you know and you you're sort of put off of, of doing solo work now in that moment you know your mother's doing you know her work. How how does she handle that rejection,
1: you know, with you? Well, she's a, a world leading expert in rejection. I yeah. would say, <laughs> you know, I think she's got a doctorate in in snarky but media. I,
0: that's why I feel bad after watching Above Us Only Sky. You know, because you get this thing locked in your head, and you you know there there's some. Did you watch it?
1: Um. Yeah, but I. Yeah, but yes. Uh, I I have. I mean, I just I've seen all that stuff. Sure before. But the interviews with the
0: guys who were there, the older guys were were just sort of like, you know, it was it was all Yoko that that shifted his perspective, you know, and I think it's important for like all those people that mythologize this whole thing that that's like important new information to reframe your mother's, you know, art and talent, you you know, and, and it was very exciting for me to be able to see it that way. Because I hadn't thought about it in a long time, but it's a a rebirth in a way.
1: Sure. I mean, I have a lot to say about that. Oh, yeah. Firstly, I think that the culture has come to a point where we we are collectively re-examining the past. Yeah. Sometimes too much, but in terms of uh, more recent... uh, understanding in uh, understandings of, of of what sexism and racism were mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. and whatever people call the patriarchy or whatever and, yeah. I, and I think this the simplest analysis of what happened to my mom is I think it was a different time in which a lot of kind of subtle latent racism and sexism was you know unnoticed and I think she was a victim of that but um on the other hand I would say that recent history especially it it is sort of an optics war between arguably subjective views mm-hmm. of reality yeah and the reason I say that is because I was I grew up being able to read lots of different biographies and histories of not just the Beatles but my parents yeah you know each of them with a completely you know contradicting or disparate view of what they were or what they did yeah and so I've always been aware that, you know, if, if people who, who actually lived in a time of film, video, micro, microphone recordings, photographs, could be misinterpreted so drastically, then how could I expect any history of anyone, you know, in the past to, to be anything like a truth? Right. You know? So I do think that history generally is a kind of optics war. And sure. the real truth will always have to be Probably harder to understand because it's probably going to have conflicting elements and, and more mundane in a way, maybe more mundane. But um, I'm not sure. But what I, I guess what I'm trying to say is like it's there's usually truth to all perspectives to some degree. But I think the most important thing you said about that was you you
0: know people who are who 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 live this dream uh, in a dream about who your your father was. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, as compared to your experience of him and your loss of him, you know, that that there's no way they can engage the empathy in that moment necessary to even take that in. Right. Sure. So so the real life element of, yeah. of living, you know, in that that zone, and hmm. it's a rarefied zone. I mean, I've talked to. Like, I've talked to uh, Duncan Jones. I've talked to Jacob Dylan. I mean, there was a small crew of you. I mean, and Duncan said that to me. He said, you know, there's only a few of us yeah. who have these p- fathers or parents. Yeah, that's true. That, like, you could, like, you know, even talking to him, like, you know, you guys are, you know, eating as a family, you know, you know watching TV, you know, you know, learning how to put your pants on and stuff. Yeah. And, and I don't know that, that people even want to humanize these guys that much. Yeah. So when you have this human experience, it it almost it doesn't even register
1: which you know is something i totally understand and 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 sympathize with because it's happened to me i mean i've had you know people that i put on a certain kind of pedestal and then it kind of gets ruined if you get to talk to him too much or something like who lou reed well i won't say any names but you know (laughs) lou was great he was cool but you know Sometimes your idea of what an actor is going to be like, sure. and then you talk to him, and you are like, "I oh, uh, god, now it's ruined for me." You know, right,
0: yeah, yeah. You don't, it's and right so I
1: understand there. that. Yeah. You know, you, you you want to hold on to that kind of precious feeling you have. Sure, sure,
0: yeah, because that's well, that's it's it's a it's, uh, you know it's in the same area of religion and hope and 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 faith. You, you know, it's it, yeah. you know, mythology. I think I read you said that somewhere about religion that you know you, you choose to see it as mythology. I, I don't know where well, you Well, yeah. That. No,
1: I do. That's amazing. You, you heard, I, I've said that before. I mean, I, I guess the, I, I've had different feelings about religion throughout my life. I mean, I grew up without any religion, so I was really extremely cynical about it actually when I yeah. was young. But I think I've gone from being a sort of militant atheist to admitting that I'm actually agnostic yeah. in the end because I don't think you can honestly say... You're an atheist. You can say you, you you err on the side of atheism, but right. truly, if you're honest, I think you have to say you're agnostic until, right? You know, you want, you want to hedge your bets. You yeah, <laughs> well, because I because you but, can't but, really say even if yeah. it's unlikely. Yeah. So, um, you know, I consider religion mythology, but that doesn't mean I'm putting it down. No, no, I get but it. I, it's through the kind of Campbellian power of myth. I don't know if you've read Joseph Campbell, but yeah. his idea of how there are these archetypes. Throughout sure. all the religions yeah. and, and therein are very profound lessons and important stuff. And, yeah. you know, that's not to say it's, it is or it isn't supernatural. But yeah. the lessons are there and they're important whether they're supernatural in origin or not. It almost doesn't matter because it's about these universal human stories that that are helpful. yeah So, yeah, that's what I mean by that. You know, but I, I, I have so many different minds about it because part of me also just looks at all of it as... And when I say all of it, I mean especially, uh, uh, you know, established religion as a kind of acceptable insanity. Like there are different things in all societies that we ex- that we allow. There's different tolerances for what is basically a kind of craziness, sure, um, or delusion. So I think of it as acceptable insanity because no matter how much progress we make with science and how austere and and important and accomplished our culture is in terms of figuring out the standard model and you know quantum computing or whatever. We we always still have a tolerance for this kind of accepted insanity, which is interesting to me because it's fascinating that we could have all, we could have all of this rational thought and like you know math and the Principia Mathematica and all these incredible rational accomplishments yeah. but still that doesn't really chip away at all at this sort of belief in these un- unprovable you know deities and forces and wasn't well, in the same sort of rubric if that's the way you use that word as what we were talking about earlier
0: that you need to you have to believe the lie exactly like it's yeah. a survival
1: exactly mode. so i think i think that's i guess it's a bittersweet truth is that we all have Probably an inherited ability to kind of f- believe in fantasies well, right. to, to our own you know to our own benefit because I think maybe without that skill li- the reality of life might be too terrifying harder to deal with exactly well, yeah the,
0: the the human like most people have an innate compulsion to believe in something bigger than themselves to find meaning in life. But getting back to like your mother's PhD in rejection. Yeah. So was she able to put it into perspective for you?
1: Um, I wouldn't say that she would completely figured it out. I think, you know, she remains human. I, I was always amazed that after having gone through so much negative attention. Yeah. Let's call it. uh that she was still hurt when, you know, there would be some snarky hurt. comment. Yeah, she's still very sensitive, to well, be she honest. she was
0: one of those people, what we talked about before, where, you know, she was, you, you know, uh, a totally unique individual expressing herself in in a way that was, you know, you know not diplomatic or, or pandering. So she was one of those freaks that, you
1: know, was going to be made fun of. She's uncensored. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, even even our Japanese family at one point disowned her technically. Yeah. I think from the official family books. Yeah. Whatever. Um, and that was actually when she married this guy, Tony, who was her second husband. But he was... You know, American. It was yeah. essentially that was all it took, just marrying someone who wasn't Japanese. And so she was rebelling against that. That's, they didn't do it with your dad, though? Um, by then, well, what's interesting and I guess typical is that once they became kind of famous as John and Yoko, then, then the family kind of started, you know, this isn't the whole family, but certain right. members sure. of, of the older generation, because yeah. my cousins and stuff I love, all of them. But um, yeah, they were, I think at least what I've been told is that they you know they started to be nicer again which i think right. h- was hurtful as well right. and the same thing happened to my dad actually with my grandfather on his side um i think it's famous that my my grandfather came to one of his shows and wanted to like hang out or something yeah. and my dad tried a little bit but i think ultimately he felt kind of hurt that he wasn't around before and then right. kind of was seemed Excited oh, about oh, I the, see I see Opportunistic the Beatles in a way. thing, yeah. yeah, so I think that connected my parents in that they both went through this kind of rejection from their family, you know, yeah, and then I think that made them specifically pair, you know uh uh complementary to each other because they understood that experience together,
0: yeah, and when he finally did another solo record,
1: yeah, how'd that go? Friendly Fire was my second solo record. Um Yeah, it went better than yeah. the first one. I was more prepared. I worked harder. You know, I wrote string arrangements and I uh I worked on those songs yeah. and I'm I'm definitely prouder of those songs, but um you know, there's something weird about me. <laughs> I I've I I almost never play music from the past. Yeah. It, 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 when I'm touring a new project and and I don't really know any other musician who's like that. I mean it's usually just sort of expected that you yeah. accumulate, you know, a catalog of songs and yeah. you kind of refer to them right. throughout your life. But I just have this weird I just have this weird part of me that almost can't deal with the past. I'm just like I don't want to deal with it. I don't want to listen to it. You know, if someone puts on those records I'm just like, "Ah, oh, just shut it off." It's yeah. like I can't I you don't know. either.
0: Like I, I you know I've got 6 or 7 uh, you know full, or 8 hours of comedy under my belt over the past two decades and I don't remember half the shit, man.
1: Yeah, and I don't know if I want it necessarily. Yeah. I mean not to be too mean about it. Like I I resp- I'm I'm grateful that there are people out there who like, you know, those records and I'm really grateful for that. But just personally, I've never and it could be shooting myself in the foot, but I, I've never nurtured that kind of catalog thing so no, i'm always no, right just, you're not i'm always kind of burning a bridge with myself right and, right. and totally committing to whatever i'm doing at well, the that's moment that's the
0: freedom and you can see that in, in, in the work you've done and also like you know in some ways not to be you know a dick but like you know it's fortunate that you didn't make an album
1: full of hits thank god <laughs> thank the lord <laughs> i mean can you imagine if i had those hits yeah well you'd be playing them yeah, I'd be playing them. And then you deal with the, the phones going I'd off. I'd have my Botox surgeon on the, <laughs> on the phone all the time. Who knows? I need more Botox. You know? Um, yeah, you know, I, I, <laughs> I, I believe in the idea of not having any regrets, though I, I think that's impossible. Of but course. But I think conceptually it's a good goal. And um, I don't know, re- recently, I don't know if you saw, I, I watched uh, a podcast, I think it was Rogan, had this guy on named Naval... Naval, I don't remember his last name. It's yeah. an Indian name, and he was talking about how happiness is not proportional to intelligence. Like there's there's tons of high IQ, you know, high, highly sure. functioning, successful people who I are I would think it'd who, be antithetical, who are miserable, exactly. Yeah. But he thinks what he, he said. So how smart are you really if you're not happy? And so he 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 talked about this idea of how how he practiced reframing everything that he could in a positive way if he could not because he thought it was more true or less true but because it treating it like a muscle like doing sit-ups right. like you just keep doing them yeah it's not fun but you develop a you develop an ability yeah right so so i've work? been i've been trying to do that either. did it work it's working i mean it's only been a couple of months but i you know i have this tendency to kind of as i said it's i guess it's the woody allen school of thought where I, you know i can be kind of pessimistic about things or, or critical as they're happening but I've been attempting to reframe things positively and you know it's it's what I'm thinking to myself is like would it hurt to just try no. right what does it hurt to just try to see if you can look at this more positively it, it so. also
0: frees up some of your brain because a lot of times it's just habitual reaction exactly and and you know and, and it's something you, you you know the people who do that which I do it's it's sort of like home base for you,
1: right? Exactly, so, but it, it's a learned identity. I think. I don't think it necessarily. No, came... it's a, it becomes an obstacle because you're afraid right. to experience happiness, or you're afraid to experience vulnerability
0: or joy. Yeah, because when you have that thing, if that's your first thing, it's 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 protecting you. You know what? Whatever you know, whatever wherever your heart's at.
1: Yeah, I agree. And in, in fact, now that you say it that way, I, I also think that all of us can our comfort zone. Doesn't necessarily have to be comfortable. Of course know? not. It's like of you can get that. used to anything. You know, yeah, if you I, wake I, up every morning and just bang your head against the wall for six months, you know, one day you'll if you don't do it, you'll be like, man, I really feel like I got to bang my head against the wall. Well, you yeah, I
0: did that on a special. My comfort zone is uncomfortable. Like, it, it, yeah. It, you know, it's 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 what you're. You know, it's a weird thing because it's a weird way to use the word comfortable. But but it's true that, you know, whatever patterns you you've created to either you know protect yourself. Or, your sensitivity, or, or or from whatever pain you uh, uh, that caused that callus, you know it, it's how you engage in the world emotionally.
1: Exactly, and I think what a lot of us do is, without realizing it, is we we're kind of some part of our brain is trying to recreate whatever the most traumatic experiences we had were in our childhood. So you're kind of looking for that because it's it was because it imprinted you. So whether you know it or not, you might be seeking right. neg- negative feelings. Sure, right? right? Yeah,
0: you, you, it's family of origin stuff that you you tend to repeat with relationships. Right. With, you know, in, 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 and and the only reaction. way to
1: escape it is to f- realize it and then make a concerted concerted effort to learn how to not do that, which is as painful as sit ups. Basically, that they suck oh, yeah. to do and it hurts to do. It doesn't feel natural, but I've been trying to do that. So this this was a long answer to you know my uh my second record or whatever yeah. how do i feel about it? It's, it you know i i felt more negative about it in the past and i actually you know i'm i i see the positive in it, it yeah it was good it was a good experience and um i've evolved as a musician since then and
0: uh well yeah you do you, you guys like i when i was looking at the the work like i you know i do what i do but you guys seem to always be doing something and like i you know the soundtrack thing that must be a, a whole other you know, world of, uh, of expression in, in, a, in a collaborative way to do film soundtracks, you know, that, that must be like a whole other set of chops and, and a whole other, to collaborate with visuals. Yeah. Like
1: that, you know. I and, do love it. I mean, the thing that's great about doing film scores is that you're not serving the purpose of your own artistic sort of desires or, yeah. or plans. Necessarily, if you didn't make the film. Right. You have this framework that takes primacy over any of your feelings or intuitions. You have to serve this sort of set uh, structure, narrative. Yeah. And so it's kind of uh, freeing in a way because you don't have the pressure of figuring out what that backbone is or fulfilling some kind of you know, uh, indulgent artistic vision, yeah. you have the, f- you, you know what needs to be done. Right, right. You know, the 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 map is laid out for you. Right. So it actually kind of frees you up in a way, and I really enjoy it. Um, I've only done like, like three or four scores, but... um,
0: in production, sort of similar too, right? That you're there to service someone else's vision in a way.
1: Yes, and I have done some production work, and uh, it's funny because it was only when I started producing other artists that I realized... Why it's great to have a producer, yeah, which I do wish I had had for friendly fire, for example, um you know i't don't, I don't think of myself as an egomaniac or something, but right. there was something in me that wanted to do it myself, produce my own right, stuff
0: control thing
1: yeah it's it's definitely it's not always a, a successful strategy, but when right. you produce other artists, what I realized was. It almost doesn't matter if I have a musical skill as a producer. Yeah. It's just the fact that I'm not that person who wrote the song, who's singing it and recording it. The fact that I'm not them gives me this perspective that they simply can't have because they're caught in the myopic, you know, vision of the the macroscopic. I mean, the microscopic looking at everything, you know, in front of your nose, whereas like I can step back and be like, oh, no, it's not working or... Your voice sounded better ten takes ago. It's really hard to 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 understand that stuff when you're in it. Sure. So it's such a simple conclusion, but it's hilarious to me that I never truly understood it because I, you know, I never wound up working with producers because I think I never really understood what they were going to do. It was kind of like, okay, right. well, you know, I'm playing this. I wrote the songs, and there's the engineer. Like, what are you going to do? You're going right. to stand there and kind of <laughs> yeah. talk. And I, I I literally just didn't get it. So. Right. Yeah, producing has been really helpful to me. Well, oh, you produce some of your mom's stuff. I did co-produce. I mean, she's she's always a producer in the studio. She's yeah. very, um, you know, she really has a vision, and she doesn't doubt her vision at all. Yeah. It's interesting, uh, you know, it, it surprises me that I'm related to her because she's so <laughs> singular in her vision, and yeah. she and she moves forward. Without any hesitation, yeah, and I think you can see that, you know, just watch her do her improvised kind of vocalization stuff, yeah. that people yeah. often make fun of, right? She's so committed though. There's, yeah, she's there's not one, you know, hair on her head that's wondering like, oh, should I do this? Yeah, you know, she's she's a hundred percent committed to to the music or being a vessel for right. her music, and I I find that to be well, it's very compelling to watch and to listen to for me. It's it's I think part of what I like about Hendrix solos or something. Yeah. It's just someone thriving and owning their own vision and and realizing realizing the music without any kind of second guessing. And I think uh it's something that I I, I, I strive towards doing. Honestly, I think for people like me who who are more, you know, prefrontally occupied meditation has been really good for me oh yeah and both my parents did tm yeah and it so I, that's the reason i started doing tm just cuz it was kind of in the family tradition yeah. but it's really helped it's really helped me in terms of not being totally controlled by that rapid fire critic you Self-critic. know yeah yeah, yeah. yeah yeah and and at least long enough that you can just play Play music and you know get it done, and then you can be critical afterwards. But sure. For me, I think it's it was hard to it was hard to put that down.
0: Oh no! Yeah, it's like, I can't.
1: Yeah, it's really hard. But I think you can learn to do it. No, Whereas I think Some so. people it comes naturally. I mean, my mom just had it. You know, she she's she's definitely self-critical in a healthy way when she's not working, but she never brings it to to the, to the performance moment.
0: Yeah. And you think that's sort of the uh, one of the more important things you have
1: gleaned from her? Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, because she, yeah, she she just has this uninhibited commitment to to the music or yeah. to the art when she's doing it. She's unapologetic. Yeah. And um, yeah, I admire it a lot. Yeah. Um, it fascinates me, and it's so alien actually to what my character is like that i think um yeah i think that's why i'm i was such a big fan of hers and i wound up producing those two records for her um or with her and putting them out on my label uh because i knew that i needed to absorb some of that yeah it's a kind of you had to you had to sort
0: of shift the relationship to being an artistic collaboration with her as a grown-up as opposed to sort of a son and somebody who sees her doing what she's doing
1: well, in terms of my relationship with her as her son, I think I looked at it as just a cooler way to spend quality time with my mom as yeah. well. It's like, you know, we could go to lunch or have right. tea or, you know, yeah. go to a museum or we could rock out. Yeah, it, right. You know, it felt a lot more connected. Yeah, yeah So that yeah, was cool, yeah, you know, because I'm always looking for things to do with her and playing music just felt like the best thing yeah, we could I, do. I listened to, I think, uh, Take Me to the Land of Hell. Which is, like, I enjoyed
0: it. I listened to it yesterday, the whole cool. album. And uh, I'd never, never listened to it before. And I'm like, this is, like, in now, uh, you know, after seeing that documentary and reframing it, I'm like, well, she's, she's great. What is? Yeah. <laughs> she's really doing what she does.
1: She's interesting. And I think people underestimate uh, her as a songwriter as well. I mean, I just, um, my label, Chimera Music, just, with this other label, Secretly Canadian, we've remastered all her vinyl solo records. Again, it was a nice way to figure out how to be a good son, was to remaster all her records and give them to her. I remember giving her a package of all the new vinyls that were, you know, we recreated the cover and the artwork and stuff. And I was like, here, you know, Merry Christmas. And she was just really touched. So, you know, it's just like a nice way to do something with her that's not just boring. And also her, her visual art's a trip too. She's very talented at drawing and it's funny because she didn't do that much drawing until yeah. she was in her 70s. Yeah, And then she started doing these pointillist abstract uh, uh, drawings like she did about a thousand of them in, you know, in a couple years. Yeah. It just came out of nowhere. And yeah. it was really fascinating to, to witness. I've never seen anything quite like it. She just went from not drawing at all to drawing constantly every day. Like, we'd be on the plane, she's doing it. We'd be, you know, the news would be on, she'd be doing it. Yeah. And uh, I think those pieces, I don't know if you've seen them, I can show you some, are one of the most important things she did in terms of changing people's understanding of her. Yeah. Because her her art was so conceptual always. and Installations, yeah. Yeah, so I I think the average person just doesn't even connect with what she did as art. Or see
0: it. You got to go walk through it usually yeah. and sit it ta- in it.
1: Yeah, it takes a lot. It yeah. it, it demands some attention yeah. in a way. But her drawings just speak for themselves. They're right. very immediate. Yeah. And so, yeah, she's done really well. I mean, she's, in fact, she's very inspiring in terms of me seeing the kind of success one can have after 50. Yeah. That most people don't talk about yeah. as even being possible. Right. But, you know, she's, her art career has really taken off in the last few decades yeah. and she she won uh, the lions gate award i think it's called in the venice biennale uh-huh. uh, a lifetime achievement and you know that's like a big deal that's like getting an oscar for yeah. an actor that's great um and but you know she wasn't getting that kind of respect sure for most of my yeah. life so to see that come to her it kind of, you know, it's like a hero's journey. It's like if you if you just stick with it, right, and you believe in yourself, it's so cliche. And keep evolving as an yeah, artist. Yeah, it can come to you. Sure. You know, it's people will, will might come around, and that has happened to her. So
0: that's great. And and I, I listen also to um, the stuff you do with your partner. Oh, Charlotte. Yeah, you guys still together?
1: Yeah, she's at the hotel.
0: Yeah, I mean, and that stuff's like totally different too. It's it's kind of like um I don't I don't know. Like I just noticed that y- you know your willingness whether it's out of insecurity or compulsion or or actually a, a need to to express things differently, y- you know, you definitely do a lot of different things musically depending on who you're working with. Yeah. And that stuff with her is 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 pretty, you know, it's it's sweet it's it's not you know it's 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 danceable it's got a, a pop vibe to it but it also has sort of a a strange kind of um uh uh
1: not campiness to it but there's something there's a carnival aspect to right, it there's yeah. i mean we were very influenced by early psych with right, the ghosts right there's that thing that almost a garage psychs. yeah thing. like Sid Barrett and oh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. and uh the pretty things and oh, yeah. the zombies and stuff but again i mean people notice that that kind of Nod to the past with yeah. that band, as as in a way that they also do with the Delirium. But yeah. with the Ghost, I don't think it's purely retro. Like it was kind of, it was kind of an amalgam of all sorts of stuff. But um, that it's band, that band, of saber tiger. Yeah, yeah. I just call it the Ghost. Yeah. Um, yeah. Charlotte. Uh, Charlotte is one of the most remarkable songwriters and musicians I've ever worked with. So that that band is totally her and me. Ongoing it's, it's not, it's like I think it. a lot of people assumed because she is pretty and she right. and she was a model that she was just kind of, you know, uh, a a stand in or something. Yeah. But she she completely produced those records. She wrote all the songs with me and um it's one of my favorite things I've ever done and it's because I got to work with someone as inspiring as she is I mean she's she really helped me with for example lyrics like she's a very good lyricist and she also has incredible grit she never gives up she's never lazy she has an amazing work ethic so she really gave me some muscles in terms of just pushing through and trying to write trying to make the lyrics better Mm -hmm. Um, I think I'd always been not lazy about it but almost like terrified to try right so it wasn't a laziness it was actually kind of Fear or something.
0: Well, it's good that, that you're with her on that level because if you're like me, and, and it seems like we have these things in common—that self-critical thing, or these, you know, these these wired-in ways of of sort of uh, avoiding, you know, a type of vulnerability that's probably necessary. Yeah. To 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 do to write songs, you know that. Yeah. You know, because like even now, I'm just trying to get through it now and just to present your ideas to someone else if they're really coming from your heart you're sort of like nah I don't want to yeah why fucking show that to anybody yeah cuz like even if they look at you if you give them something to read and yeah. you're looking at their face you're like they give it back
1: yeah you're like no I like it nah I don't know no, I know exactly what you mean <laughs> I can be like that too I've definitely gotten tougher though I've gotten thicker skin over the years yeah yeah um but you know it's it's important to be empathetic enough to realize that they probably don't why w- don't mean it as badly as you yeah, think. Why
0: would why would they? They're, they you just have probably have
1: no idea what a freak you are and how sensitive you are. They right. just think you're a normal person. So they're just saying, yeah, this part could be better. And you're like, what? <laughs> you mean I shouldn't exist? Not, like my very my existence isn't justified. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I think I had... Hard to live I, with. I have that part of me, but it's definitely... I've 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 des, I've decided to be tougher about it because cause you otherwise older, you helpful. can't yeah yeah I mean you have to be able to grow from constructive criticism you have to be able to internalize it from your smartest friends and well, take the advice seriously and improve because otherwise you're just gonna basically be you forever which is Okay, maybe, but no. But what it is, I think it's fundamentally childish,
0: and you know, coming from you know whether it's a, a, a kind of a you know, permissive upbringing or or from in my case parents that were sort of self-involved to the point where it was permissive, is that you know you know if you don't get some sort of healthy sense of failure either through sports or whatever the fuck it is, or or at least one parent you know teaching you how to shoulder that stuff, I mean, you're going to have this emotional part of you that's like five,
1: exactly, which I think is why. I hope the next generation of parenting, the post-boomer parenting, takes a page from both previous generations yeah. because I think I think you know it may have swung too far the other way, right? Which is um, not wanting to have your kid dislike you because you're it's crazy, you're being tough on them, and you know there's this I guess fable I read. It's about parenting, like a good parent will tell their son, like, jump off the stairs, I'll I'll catch you. Like, don't worry, you can trust me. And yeah. the son jumps and you just let him hit, smack himself on the floor. And he goes, why did you do that? And he's like, because that's, you know, this is what the world Life is, is right. going to be like. Yeah. And I think that's really hard to do as a parent because you actually have to, you have to be mature enough to to rational rationalize that this is best for the kid, even though it's going to be uncomfortable for you because they're going to, be mad at you for a while. Sure. And but if you actually care about them and not your feelings, yes. then you can prioritize their growth over, maybe they'll always be mad at you for that. But if you really love them, you should be able to take that, at your hurt feelings, right. o- for their growth, which is, I think that's rough. difficult. I mean, you don't have kids. No, I don't. You want to. I, I mean, theoretically, I do. I mean, at this age, every time I see a kid, I'm like, oh my God, I love kids. Yeah. But... um. It's not something that I've always been like headed towards, and Charlotte and I've been together for like twelve years, and yeah. we're still not married, and we're kind of well in one way, I think we're closer than a lot of our friends who've got married and divorced like several times since we've been together, you know we're we're tight, so I don't know if we need marriage to qualify it, but it's also because I don't think either of us had many examples of marriage being somehow. A, beac- a beacon of right. real love it, right. it's always been kind of complicated sure in our lives yeah you know we don't have many role models who who are necessarily better off because they're married I'm sure they're out there but you know yeah. we're just kind of finding our own way I guess that's good
0: but in terms of uh like you know we you were talking about You know, just like we we really talked about your mom a lot, and we talked about your your dad to a degree. But like when I watch something like that, doc, when you see that stuff, was that part of your, you know, building a relationship with him?
1: Yeah, um, it's hard to explain this. It's whenever I see a a film about my dad or go to there have been museum shows yeah. about yeah. archival stuff like in Japan or right. whatever you know as grateful as i am that all of that's out there it kind of it kind of feels uncomfortable for me because there's something really personal in my heart regarding memories of him real memories of yeah. him and and just you know his books and mm-hmm his guitars and, you know, being in the house and just watching The Muppet Show with him. Sure. That stuff feels so, so precious to me that when it's externalized into some kind of media format, it actually feels kind of uncomfortable. Mm. I mean, I'm not, it's it's not like it's traumatizing, right. but it doesn't feel as connected as the real life, sure. uh, real world stuff, I, I'll I'll just say it's not as important to me as just you know my personal sure memories in my own life, and uh, uh and you you have a relationship with your brother and everything. Yeah, that's great. I, I do, and that's always been the case. It's always been the case. Um, I think, um, I think there have been different times when we 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 haven't been actively as close but we've always we've always loved each other deeply irregardless of whatever kind of public right media complexity there was yeah. um i don't think people realize how close we were i mean there were times when he stayed at our house in the dakota and he was taught me guitar and you know yeah. uh when his first record came when his first record came out and was a huge hit i mean he was absolutely my hero yeah you know i mean i i I was as inspired to play guitar because of watching him play the show at the beacon that I saw as I was, you know, by, you know, my mom and dad playing music. It was, he, you know, he was like the cool, the cool, successful leather jacket wearing better singer than me musician who really was killing it, you know? So I totally looked up to him. Yeah. Um, I think the media perception of our relationship is one of the most, false narratives I've ever seen. I mean, I think people imagine that we were kind of pitted against each other, but that just never happened between us. There have been tensions between the family publicly about certain things, but but it never spilled over into our relationship. We've always loved each other,
0: yeah. It's so funny, too, because you both sort of like, there is a a genetic component to your, your vocalization styles that is Lenin-esque.
1: Yeah, it's but wild. you know he definitely has better pipes than I do. Right. He but can, he can really a, sing.
0: There's a phrasing thing
1: that that seems similar. There's something. There's something in there for yeah. sure. Uh, it's funny because, again, my first album, I remember n- intentionally trying not to sound like my dad because I was kind of nervous about mm-hmm. that. So I wound up singing in this way that I, to this day, I can't deal with it. It was, it was very. It was sort of like a whispery whine and I didn't use any effects on my voice because every time I did it would make it sound more like my dad cuz my dad he'd slap or he'd use, you know, flange or whatever. Yeah. So I avoided all that stuff that actually makes my voice sound good. And then I intentionally didn't sing out cuz whenever I sing out I start to sing more like him like if I push the air I get more of a grit and then people start to say, "Wow, you sound like your dad." So I kind of regret overthinking it. Yeah. When I was young. So now I actually just sing the way that comes natural to me yeah. and, but I do sound more like him when I do that and um, you know there's nothing I can do so yeah no no it's, I think it's nice yeah I mean I've I've got the that texture in my voice and I, you yeah. know, I can't really avoid it but I just you know I'm just praying that I'm that there's a that there's positive growth in my future I definitely it's daunting to imagine that I already you know had my chance well, don't with think the, about with it the, that
0: way We're, apply your new skills yeah no i am and I, <laughs>
1: I definitely play better than ever and i feel like i understand music better than ever so but uh well i think you're doing great and i and I like the new record thanks and i really appreciate it man that's yeah, cool i, I mean I, I was surprised to to even know that it was on your radar that's cool man
0: yeah well i mean it's like things get on my radar by people saying like you know do you know this stuff and i'm like i don't and then i ended up listening to like a lot of this stuff and getting in to your mom's stuff and then to your, you know, some of your dad's other stuff
1: and then like all your stuff. So like, you know, it's been a, it's been a fun week. That is the cool thing about the internet is you can find something and then very quickly kind of learn so much about it. And, you know, and
0: just listen to experience your own, your, your creative evolution. Cause there's so much out there. How are you going to choose this stuff? You yeah. know, but, uh, but it, it it's great. And it was great talking to you.
1: Mutual man. It was fun.
0: That was great. You got to know that guy, huh? And, you know, everybody's getting along. Nice. The, the album, South of Reality, by the Claypool Lennon Delirium, is available wherever you get music. They're on tour this summer all across the country. You can go to uh, ClaypoolLennonDelirium.com for tour dates. You can go to SwordOfTrust.com for information on uh, on on the Sword of Trust. Uh Lynn Shelton's movie with me in it and Michaela Watkins, John Bass, Julian Bell uh, Toby Huss damn back it all funny stuff you can always go to sortoftrust.com for details about all the different places it's playing there's a lot of places coming up alright, no, no music Boomer Lives